the demolition of a structure can be incredible. When the target is an old condemned building, no problem. But when a wrecking ball swings against our homes or churches, it's another story. There is a demolition artist who is at work to destroy especially our churches. In some areas, the dust and smoke still hasn't cleared from the effect of his work. Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which exposes his assault. Jealousy and quarreling. Have you ever had any of that in your own individual families? Anybody here remember when you had little brothers and sisters and one would get uh, something a little bit nicer than you got for Christmas and it just didn't look like it was quite fair and you were jealous? You ever have any of that trouble in your church families? Jealousy and quarreling. In other words, you look around the room and you see someone that has a gift. Maybe they can sing. Maybe they can speak publicly. Uh, maybe they've been given the gift of making a lot of money and you wish very desperately that you had that same gift. And so you become jealous. And when we become jealous, we become prideful. In fact, I guarantee you that sometime or another in your Christian experience that you'll be tempted to turn away from Christ, to not be involved with his people, to not fellowship the group of believers, because you're going to say, those people just fight with one another. They just quarrel. They're jealous. All of us know that jealousy and quarreling produce church demolition. They demolish the church. It's like bringing a great big steel ball, putting it up on a big crane, and swinging it. And it comes crashing against not a building, but it comes crashing against people. And that's what happens when jealousy and quarreling infect the church. When I first started pastoring, when I saw jealousy and quarreling, it used to be just devastating to me because I would say, you know, how in the world can you have a group of believers that genuinely love the Lord, they're seeking to be used by the Lord, and yet there's all these terrible personality conflicts. How is this thing going to keep going? How in the world could Jesus really be all that he says that he is? That's why I'm so thankful for the New Testament, because when you study the New Testament, you find out that all the kinds of problems that we face in our everyday lives, in our family life, in our church life, in our individual life, the Bible already talks about those things. The church of Corinth was filled with jealousy. So if you've ever been a part of a church family and say, well, I don't think that Christianity is true. I don't think it's going to last. I just don't think Jesus Christ could be who he says he is. Because there's all this quarreling and bickering among the different churches. And everybody seems to have their own little special club that they're a member of. I don't think Christianity could be true. Lest you follow that line of reasoning, I want you to realize that more than 1900 years ago, that the New Testament churches were filled with the same kinds of problems that our church is filled with, the same kind of problems that churches all over the world are filled with, and yet 1900 years later, the church of Jesus Christ is still a light in the world, and it will continue to be a light. And yet it's so important for us not to be overcome by these demolition criterion of jealousy and quarreling, and instead for us to listen to the apostle to ask ourselves and to open our hearts to what he has to say to us. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he gives us the answer. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because in this chapter, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer to the problem of jealousy and quarreling in the church. And we're going to talk this morning about the cure 
for church demolition. Verses 1 through 9, Paul presents his first major answer to how do you overcome jealousy in the church? And maybe jealousy in the church really isn't your problem. Maybe it's jealousy with a friend. Maybe it's a girlfriend that you're jealous of what she has. You're jealous of some of the abilities that she has. Or maybe it's a fella. Maybe a close personal friend. Because often jealousy attacks close personal relationships. In fact, I guarantee you that if you get genuinely close to people, that you're going to have to wrestle with the problem of jealousy. And you're going to have quarrels in your marriages. You're going to have jealousy in your friendships. Rather than being overcome by these things, we need to listen to what God's Word has to say in an answer to that. And Paul answers the problem of jealousy and quarreling with this principle in verses 1 through 9. God alone can enable believers to grow. Whenever jealousy begins to infect your heart, whenever you begin to be prideful, you begin to compare yourself to someone else, and then you become dejected because you don't have the abilities they have, whenever you're tempted to join a leader and to follow that leader and to exclude all other leaders, you know, you get into a kind of a criteria and say, well, I follow this teacher. And I love to listen to that teacher every day in the radio. And that's the only teacher that I listen to. And I don't like that teacher over there. I don't like that speaker that comes by. Or my preacher's the greatest preacher in the world. Or my preacher stinks. And by the way, you'll probably go back and forth between those extremes at one time or another in your life. Whenever that kind of thing begins to permeate our mind, and it's kind of like a spirit. It's, it's an attitude that begins to come over us. We know that it's wrong. We know that it's really not biblical. But it's an attitude that begins to eat away at us. And it begins to cause us to do a lot of things that we really do not want to do. And the Apostle Paul says that whenever we do that, we have our eyes on men. We have our eyes on the human. Instead of having our eyes upon God. Now, we all do that naturally, but Paul in verses 1 through 9 brings out how crazy that is, how stupid it is to do that, and he gives us a very objective reason. Let's begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, you're included. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're talking to the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, the primary audience is you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, you've all heard messages on these verses. Many times your pastor has read these verses, and then he has proceeded to lambaste you about the fact, why aren't you mature? Why don't you read your Bible more? Why don't you memorize more verses? Why don't you come to church more? Why do you like to go to those certain kinds of movies that aren't really good for you? Why do you listen to that rock music? Why do you not do this, and why do you not do this? And on and on and on. Now, some of those things are true, and some of those things are not healthy for you from the Word of God's perspective. But that's not at all what this scripture is really talking about. And one of the things that I've really committed myself to is how important it is for us to go consecutively through books of the Bible. I am incredibly amazed at how some believers never take the Word of God line upon line thought upon thought, carefully, and think about it. Even many preachers are not doing that. In fact, some of the preachers that scream the loudest 
about the authority of the Word of God and obeying the Word of God, and it's the God-breathed Scriptures, they don't study it line upon line, concept upon concept, book by book, letting the Word of God determine the thoughts that we allow to control and to dominate our lives. So we're talking about worldliness in these verses, and that's a loaded word. In fact, in the environment that I was raised with, man, there are five things you didn't do, and if you didn't do those things, you were not worldly. If you did do those things, you were worldly. Some of you have been raised in environments where if you have your hair a little bit over your ears, you're worldly. If you get it cut off, just like that, you solved your problem of worldliness. Most of you girls, according to many groups in the Christian church, are very worldly today because you wore pants, and that's worldly, to wear pants. And it's easy to remedy that. You just wear a dress, and you'll no longer be worldly. Now, we all laugh about that, and when I talk to you like that, you say, oh, no, we would never do that. But believers all over the world are controlled by taboos. They're controlled by authority figures that say, this is worldliness, and this is not worldliness. And the only way that you're going to become free in your life is for you yourself to think carefully what the Word of God genuinely does mean by this idea of worldliness. Now, the Apostle Paul has a contrast. He says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual, as mature people. Now, what does the Apostle Paul mean by that? He doesn't mean a special group in the family of God that have received a second blessing he doesn't refer to a group of believers in the church that pray eight hours a day. He doesn't refer to a special group of people who have unbelievable intellects and can understand the intricacies of theological systems. They've solved the problem of the free will of man versus the sovereignty of God. That's not what he means. When Paul talks about mature spiritual people, he talks about people who by faith are believing that the Holy Spirit has come to live in their life by believing the message of the cross, the simple gospel message. And in their life, day by day, they're seeking for that cross to become a paradigm, an example of the way they live, the kind of servant love that Christ exhibited in going to the cross is by the power of the Spirit working in their life, slowly but surely becoming the paradigm of their own life, the example that they live out. In other words, Paul in this chapter is not talking about elite Christians versus the peon Christians. He's really talking about normal Christians, Christians that believe the Holy Spirit is in their life, Christians that are responding to the message of the cross, it's not just a message in the past, but it's a message of believing in the present. They're a humble people, they're a childlike people, but not a childish people. It's very important to realize that because some of you decided that you do not want to be spiritual people. You don't want to be a super saint. You don't want to go too deep into this thing. And you have the idea that being a carnal Christian being a fleshly Christian is the normal way to live. What Paul's saying in this chapter is just the opposite from that. There's not an acceptable category called a fleshly carnal Christian who lives just in this world, who doesn't live for eternity, who doesn't really appreciate the cross, who isn't living in the power of the resurrection. That's not an acceptable category. That's sick, very sick. 
And the reason it's so sick is because it's only in Christ that you and I find life. It's only in Christ that you and I are able to enter into all that this life is supposed to bring. And so when Paul talks about worldliness or infants in this chapter, he's not talking about a normal category of believers, and you can make your choice. Some of you will be infant believers. Some of you will be spiritual believers. Those that want to have a good time will be carnal believers. Those that want to get really, you know, serious about this and have God take all the fun out of their life, they'll become the super spiritual people. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a terrible situation that's taking place in Corinth where you have spiritual people that are genuinely filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does live in their life, but they're acting like he isn't even there. And they're beginning to forget all about the word of the cross. They're beginning to forget all about the power of the resurrection. And they're just living like normal worldlings, normal earthlings, normal people of the world, just the way anybody else that's a human being would live. And they've forgotten that unbelievable gift of grace that they've received in Christ. So Paul says, I could not address you as spiritual people, people that were responding to the Holy Spirit in their life, people that were building on the message of the cross, people that would recognize that the foolishness of God is really wisdom. Instead of talking to them like people that were living according to that principle, he had to address them as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Then he goes on, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Now, there's a little bit of hurt in these verses because, you know, when a baby's born, when you first come to know Christ, we expect you to be babies. We expect you to still have a whole lot of your attitudes centered in this world. When you first come to know Christ, your attitudes, a lot of your actions are still going to be very much determined from the philosophy of what's going to give me a kick in this life. You're not going to understand a whole lot of the love of the cross. You're not going to understand a lot about growing in grace and living by faith because you're just a baby. And when you're first born into the Christian life, that's a normal condition. And the Apostle Paul isn't down on a baby that's really a baby in time. They just came to know the Lord. And you know, I would encourage you as a group of believers, because we're going to have some babies. And one of the tendencies of a church family is they come down over babies about babyish behavior. In other words, you have a person that just came to know the Lord, and maybe they go and do something that a mature believer wouldn't do, and the mature believer goes, and they dump all over the little baby Christian. They say, how could you ever do that? And they discourage the baby believer because they don't give the baby time to grow and they try to get a baby to act like an adult. We try to do that with our own kids, don't we? Many times we're asking a five-year-old to act like they're 26. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that physically. We shouldn't do it spiritually. So I want you to understand that when the Apostle Paul was ministering to the Corinthian church, when he first went there, when he first presented the message of the cross to them, he wasn't down on them that there was still a lot of baby behavior in the church. What he's upset about now is that they haven't grown. Because when babies don't grow, when they don't progress towards becoming like Christ, when they stop in their Christian life, 
and they just start to, to just kind of hover, but they don't really hover because if you're not progressing, you're going backwards. And then you become a very sick believer that becomes a very sad believer because instead of growing on to maturity, you're still acting like a baby. And the Apostle Paul is not putting anybody on a guilt trip. There's a very genuine hurt in his life because these believers that he loves so very much have not gone on. They're still acting like babies. Now, how did he know they were acting like babies? Well, let's look and see what it says. Indeed, you're still not ready to receive the solid food. And that would not be a different food than the message of the cross, but a deeper understanding of the message of the cross. You are still worldly. Now, how did he know they were worldly? Well, let's try on his definition of worldliness. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not acting like mere human beings that don't have the spirit? Now, this is Paul's definition of worldliness. And, it, you know, we like to define worldliness with things that we control. Like I jokingly started out with dress length, whether or not you wear pants, whether or not you cut your hair certain ways, how many times you come to church, how many hours you read your Bible. You see, all those kinds of things that we use for definitions of godliness versus definitions of worldliness, we use all those things because they're easy to control. You see, it's easy for me as a pastor, relatively easy, to lock you into a behavior pattern. You see, I can tell you, man, you do these five things and you'll be a spiritual person. And if I make them external things, then they're easy. And we can all be proud of ourselves and feel like we're better than anybody else. And usually in a situation that's doing that, the pastor is very, very strong, very powerful. And you're motivated to obey him because if you don't obey him, he's going to put a big guilt trip on you. Now, I want to share with you that the word of God will forever set you free from that. You're not subject to any man, finally. You don't have to listen to a word that Dave Wurtson says that's my idea. You don't, have to, you don't have to live for me. You don't have to try to please me. In fact, if you do, you're acting in a worldly way. And if I seek to motivate you that way, then I'm motivating you in a worldly way. Now, what's the evidence of worldliness in our life? In this passage, one of the prime evidences of worldliness in our lives is jealousy. So all of us need to stop and ask ourselves, are we jealous? We all have to ask ourselves that. I have to ask myself that, and you have to ask yourself that. And by the way, pastors are some of the most jealous people that I know. They're jealous of their positions. They're jealous of their pulpits. They're jealous of their success. It's so easy for me to get angry. You know, if you sleep in too late and you don't come out, man, I studied all week. I was really ready to give you a message. Nobody came. Makes me really angry and upset. And I'm jealous about Chuck Swindoll because you all will turn on the radio and listen to him five days a week. And you'll do it religiously. And you can get jealous about that. All that's wrong. And those are the temptations that I have to wrestle with. I've tried to be really honest with you about what goes in my own heart. Because in my own ministry over the years, I've had some very interesting combinations. I was raised 
in the power structure of fundamentalism. See, I was raised in that. Dr. Criswell, I remember you know, him putting his hand on my head. I was raised, exposed to all those people. In fact, I've spoken side by side with those people. And I've sat at dinner around tables with them and had them say, man, that was a tremendous message. And it's so easy to get into this attitude. Boy, you did a good job, but I'm coming along. I'm learning how to do this. That's sick. That's totally sick. It's wrong. And if things go well, then you're proud as a peacock. But you know, nine out of ten things don't go so well. Because the truth of the matter is about public speaking is a good grade in public speaking is about an 80. Because it's so complicated. You see, you all come together and for me to get an idea across to you, for me to be able to take an idea from my head and get it into your head is near to impossible. To get it into your life is a total miracle. And there's no room for any pride at all in any of it. But oh, we're prideful as Christian people. There's tremendous amounts of jealousy in the evangelical church today. This preacher is jealous of that preacher's success. The preachers that are on TV are calling for everyone to give money to them. And the preachers that aren't on TV are jealous because the preachers that are on TV, they're taking all the money away. And I want to share with you one of the fundamental reasons why preachers are crashing. Because we worship them. We worship preachers. You know what else we do? We crucify preachers. We do it to our political leaders. We do it to our spiritual leaders as well. We bow and scrape and serve them. We will be chauffeurs. We will put them up in the beautiful hotels. We will give them all kinds of money. We'll send them on fantastic vacations. We will bow and scrape before them. We will go to hear them speak. And the bigger the preacher, the bigger the crowd. But then we'll kill them. Because we'll get them higher and higher and higher. And they'll forget that they're just human beings. They'll forget that they're just people, just like you and me. I've been with some of the most famous preachers. You can't even eat a regular meal with them. You sit down at the table. They don't even talk to you. They don't have time to talk to on a regular conversation. They only talk to 50,000 people at a time. And I'm being extreme. But we create a superstar. I've been with some of the superstar Christians where they have, you know, you have a, a whole entourage. When I was a kid, we used to jokingly talk about it. Let's make way for the king. Prepare for the king and his court. It was just like that. Man, you'd have the advanced people come in. You'd have hairdressers and all kinds. You'd be amazed. And all of us want that. You see, there's a part of you, the reason that we as people do that for movie stars, we do it for politicians, we do it for preachers, because that's what we all want. But most of us can't have it. But if we can give it to somebody else... Then we feel, well, the illusion's there. Somewhere out there, there's that great hero, that great leader, that great king. And that's all sick. And that person that's up on that kind of a pedestal loses touch with their humanity, loses touch with the fact that they're just a normal person, wrestling with very difficult problems. There's a whole lot of clay in us. And they get higher and higher and higher. And they begin to think that they're divorced from real temptation. And they really will not be overcome. And then Satan takes a sledgehammer and knocks them out. And when they fall off their pedestal, then we stomp all over them. And start with another leader that we can worship. 
That's exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. And it can so easily go on in our own churches. This is Dave Wurtzen, and we're going to be continuing with this discussion of a cure for church demolition. And I pray with all my heart as we've been trying to just cause you to be able to feel what was happening in the Corinthian church and how they got their eyes off the centrality of Christ and onto human leaders and human giftedness and how it, the jealousy and the anger literally tore the church apart. The Lord's really been convicting me uh, in recent months about my pride and how easy it, it is to be jealous of the success of others and how easy it is to become prideful of some of the opportunities that the Lord gives you. And when you're with your peers, it's so easy to be boasting about um, how many people are coming to your church and how big the offering is and how many books you've written. And, and all of that kind of thinking only discourages others, or if others are more successful, it just feeds their pride. And this whole success orientation takes us away from the humility and the tenderness that we need to have towards the Lord. And I pray for some of my brothers, some of you pastors that are out there, I pray that the Lord might set you free from that jealousy of others and that together that we might labor. And how I pray that the Lord would use this time on Truth Encounter to be a strengthening time for you to and give you encouragement as you expose the Word and also to help members of the body of Christ in your area to grow.